You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, this, uh, this chapter is, I'm, I'm excited about it, I guess, I don't know, I'm just trying to, not that I'm, I'm never excited to get up here, but this is a, is a chapter that some of you are going to come here, you don't even know what it's on yet, 1 Samuel 17, and you come there, you're like, oh, I know, this is David and Goliath. Today we get to go through uh, one of the most exciting stories in all of the Bible. Um, it, it's, it's iconic, David versus Goliath. It's well-known. It's familiar. Uh, many of you know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, some of you grew up in church. You went to Sunday school. Uh, my kids actually are kind of sick today. They're not able to be here, but they were bummed because they, they love the story of David and Goliath. I read it to them often, get to hear, teach them the story of David and Goliath. And right now, mom's, uh, my wife said that they're home and they're um, not feeling too great, but they got outside and they're making slingshots at home right now, okay? Uh, they're making slingshots to be able to shoot at Goliath, right? There, there's something about the story of David and Goliath that just we love, there's, there's the cinematic feel to it. It's the competition of this battle royale, this 1v1 in a sense, this mano y mano, this uh, Goliath versus David, this epic fight. In the, all of that fight, though, there's a, there's a storyline that, that we all cling to, that we all kind of sense, I guess, and it's that, that underdog story, right? The underdog. We, we love an underdog. We love the storylines of, of the great and mighty and penetrable, arrogant and proud Goliath and, and then this little humble underdog and everyone's rooting for David. Yeah, get him, you know, and we can think back through the history of, of our own history or sports or whatever it might be and you can often think back to those underdog stories. You know, for the, in 1980, you have the very famous uh, U.S. versus the Soviet Union hockey game. Maybe some of you maybe remember that. I uh, read about it and on the line. But it's the story of the miracle on ice, right? This incredible miracle of these, like, college kids who beat the mighty Soviets in hockey. And then, you know, we think about uh, my era. I can still remember uh, the time when the Patriots were, were terrible and had no history. And then 2001 came along. And you had this, this underdog, Tom Brady, 199th pick, come and win the Super Bowl against the mighty Rams, the greatest show on turf, and all this stuff. And it's like, nowadays we think of him as the great, but back then he was unknown, untested. Some of you are into cars, and there's that story that I've heard about recently, the Ford versus Ferrari, uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And somebody was telling me about the other day, there's a film made about it, this incredible story of Ford crafting this GT, this car, and, and then it, it beat Ferrari in the epic competition and this incredible underdog story that there's so many different ways. You look them up online and there's so many different underdogs in military history. There's so many that we, we just gravitate to these stories. We love to hear this underdog story, this, this little David taking on the great and mighty Goliath. And yet sometimes in the story, before we jump into it, is this feeling of 
of trying to figure out how this applies to our own lives and, and looking at the storyline. We can get so focused on David and so focused on Goliath, we, we kind of miss the main character. This happens a lot in the Old Testament. As we read about storylines and stuff, we, we forget the main character, the main hero of the story it is not necessarily David. It's actually God. I know that's not a surprise for many of you. But when we think about the story, we have to keep in mind the main player in the story is God who's orchestrating and empowering everything from behind the scenes. And the extraordinary fact of the whole, of the whole story is the fact that David is, is not operating on his own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit working and empowering him to accomplish this mighty victory. We're not actually David in this story in many ways. David's the anointed one of God. He's a type of Christ in this passage. And so what we see is that we're actually, I, I fit more into not being David in this story. I, I fit a little bit more into the Israelite army. I'm the one over there in the corner cowering and afraid. And I don't want to take on this battle. I don't want to take on this giant. I need someone to come rescue me. I need a champion and a savior and a, and a, and a Messiah to take on the battle for me, the one that I could not win. And so this is the, the main narrative over here. There's so much more going on here underneath the service than our classic way that we often read this is just, you know, if David can do it, so can you. You know, you're going to read a lot of best-selling Christian books that are going to have that main idea about David and Goliath. David did it, so can you. You have a giant in your life, you go pick up your smooth stone and take on whatever giant it is because David did it, so can you. Now there is a certain surface level of truth there that God can empower us to take on these aspects and obstacles and hardships in life and there are many things in front of us that, yeah, we can take on through the power of God. But the main storyline, the main purpose of this passage is to teach us that God is our champion not we ourselves. It is Jesus Christ to whom we are looking to. It is he who has defeated death, sin, and the devil. It is that person of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrection. This is the one in whom we are looking to to rescue us. It's not about us. We so often read ourselves into the passage and we try to make ourselves, I like, I don't know, if you've been around my preaching a lot, of, you know that this is where this might have been going. But that, that concept that, that I like to read myself into the passage so often, and I miss the fact that God is the main figure here, he's the main hero. Jesus is our champion. And so right before we jump into it, I want that to be in your mind. I want to put this in your mind before we begin. Colossians 2.15, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 1 Corinthians 15.57. 1 Corinthians 15.57 says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to him who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. So, let me pray, and then we're going to jump right into 1 Samuel 17. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for these truths. Thank you for your scripture. May you be glorified today in the way we open up your word. Lord, even the testimony that's been shared this morning, thank you for the encouragement that that is. I pray that the testimony of this scripture today would encourage our hearts, would give, it us, would give us confidence, would li literally give us courage today. 
Father, there are many things out there. There are many giants out there. There are many hardships that we face. God, may we look to you for our strength, for our courage. Build our faith today in you. Thank you for your grace upon us. Thank you for your saving work within us. Thank you for your church. Thank you for these people. You bless every one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, what we're going to do is I'm going to attempt to to run through this chapter. I'm going to kind of point out things as we go. I changed my outline this week probably four or five different times, okay? So this is a well-known passage, and I don't want us to lose sight of of the, the meat that's in this chapter just for the sake of knowing it and being so familiar with it. I want this passage to come alive to you today. I want, it, I want you to be excited about what's here because, because there, uh, this week there's so many little things in here that just kind of jumped off that I hadn't noticed before. And I've read this chapter dozens and dozens of times, right? Maybe more than that. I don't know. So, so it's this beauty of this chapter. There's so much richness here and so many aspects of David point us to Jesus and the gospel which give us hope for today, uh, really faith for today and hope for tomorrow. So let's look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in the Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line in battle against the Philistines, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. Here's this epic picture here. The Philistines are on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them, the valley of Elah. So you get the picture in your mind. One mighty battle, one mighty army over on one side with their king, and another mighty army on the other with their king. And in between them stands one person, There, verse 4, came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. The word champion there, we'll look at it later, is this idea, is is the word champion here is used like three or four times in this chapter and it's used nowhere else in the Bible. It's a very unique word, used only here in 1 Samuel 17. It means the man in between the two. So there is a man in between the two armies, and it is likened in this idea of a champion, one representing the two. There is a champion in between, and that person here is Goliath of Gath, whose height is ginormo, okay? Is that a word? Can we say that? He's tall, okay? And and not just tall, he's... it references this cubits in a span. These are loose terms trying to figure out the exact measure of what a cubit is. This is basically saying he's over nine feet tall. So he's looking practically right at a basketball rim, okay? I'm six foot, I'll fudge a little bit, I'm six foot four. How about that? We'll just say that, you know, if I'm wearing my boots, right? Six foot four. He's, two, he's way taller than that. He, he, I have to jump to get the top of a basketball rim. He is literally almost looking at it right in his face, this basketball rim of 10 feet tall. 
So some would say he's maybe nine foot one. Some would say if you determine the way, he could be almost nine foot 11. I think the tallest man in the world ever to live was, I think it's, uh, it was in my notes the other day, I think it's Robert Waldo, I think it is, and I believe he was in, uh, born in the early 20s, and I think he was 8 foot 11, if I remember correctly, and yet he had, uh, he was not physically strong, he was weak in so many ways, yet t- I believe he even died young, but, but here we have this incredible strength. Not only is he tall, it says in verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head. He had it armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. I think that came out to be, depending again how you weigh a shekel, around 120 pounds of this chain mail, which is almost like the word literally is scales. He was wearing these scales, very snake-like. We'll talk about that later. But he was armed with a, a coat of mail, and the weight of this was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs. He had javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. Verse 7, the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed about 600 shekels of iron. And he had a shield bearer that went before him. He had this other dude just to carry his shield around. <laughs> and then he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Why have you not come out? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, remember, when they heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Before I move on to the rest of the passage, we have these, these incredible details about Goliath's armor, specific. It's in your face. There is nobody really else in the entire Old Testament in which their armor is described with such detail. It's meant to jump off the page for you, to be like, wow, there's something special here. There's something unique here. We've got a picture of someone who physically and outwardly is the most impressive and frightening individual you have ever seen. He is powerful. He is strong. There is not a single person in the Israelite army that can go up against him in hand-to-hand combat. And so we, we liken in our mind as we've been studying this idea, we know something to be true That in the past, in chapters before, there was a phrase, the Ark of the Covenant was captured and it weighed lace to the Philistine households in the cities, Uh, tumors were spread, pestilence was spread, the house of Dagon, the idol came tumbling down. And there's a phrase in which it, when the Ark is returned to Israel, there's a phrase where they say, who can stand before a holy God? Maybe that's ringing in the back of your mind, maybe it isn't. Who can stand before a holy God? Because we're now up against a guy who seems to be doing just fine standing against a holy God. What is going to be happening? What will occur when this man blasphemes a holy living God? Will he be the one who can stand up to this mighty God? Well, let's see. Verse 12. Then as the cinematic scene goes, it pans down to, to this little tiny boy walking, right? He, some would say he's late teens, probably early 20s. And David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. 
named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest of the Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of the three sons who went into battle were Eliab, uh, and then the next to him was uh, Abinadab, and the third was Shema. Verse 14 says, David, remember, was the youngest, could even say the smallest, and the three eldest followed Saul, but, very clear delineation, David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. They're, they're, very, they're very keen on letting you and reminding you that David is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. They'll be pointed out many times. Verse 16, and then for 40 days the Philistines came forward. The Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. That's exhausting amount of, of mockery. Every day, morning and evening, Goliath came out and no one would take him on. And so we see this, this statement here, this amazing, incredible passage as it speaks to 40 days. There's so, so many things of 40 days and 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus in the wilderness against uh, Satan for 40 days. That word is, is significant. Look at verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an, if, an ephah and, and, and of parched grain and 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See that if your brothers are well, you bring some token from them. Bring a token from your brothers. Bring it back to me. What decent token is, is David going to be returning with? <laughs> a decent, <laughs> he's got, you already know this. He's going to be returning with a decent-sized token. It's the head of Goliath, all right? Uh, verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines fighting with the Philistines. Well, really, they weren't fighting anyone. They're sitting there afraid. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper. He took the provisions and he went. He obeyed as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment at the host as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Get this, verse 21. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle an army against army. And verse 22. And David, now this just seems an arbitrary point here, but it's very significant. Verse 22 David left the things in charge of the keeper of the what? Keeper of the baggage. And ran from there to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Did anyone, what, what, what did we see when we, pretty much the second time we meet Saul, what is Saul doing? He's hiding in the baggage. Do you remember that? Saul the king has been selected and stand up, Saul. Saul, where are you? Where is Saul. Someone finds Saul. He's hiding in the baggage. Here, we see David coming to the battlefield. He leaves his things with the keeper of the baggage. Then he leaves the baggage and runs to the front lines where his brothers are. It's a significant point of contrast. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words before him. And what? David heard him. Earlier, Saul and the people heard Goliath. They were afraid. Now, David hears Goliath. What's his response going to be? Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. The king will enrich the man who kills him and with great riches give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. These are the rewards that you'll get if you kill Goliath. And David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised from Israel and who, uh, this Philistine? 
who, that he should dare to defy the armies of the living God. No one said anything about that so far. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. You get all this stuff if you do this. Then verse 28, then Eliab, remember, the oldest and the tallest brother, heard what he had spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness with? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, but you've come down here to see the battle. You just want to get a sight of all this stuff. You just want to see all the fun stuff because you have to do your boring job of taking care of the sheep. And David responds as any younger brother, well, what have I done now? I mean, come on, dude. Was, was it not but a word that I said? Like, what's the big deal? Right? You guys, you know, you have multiple brothers. You know what it's like? Come on, man. Give me a break. I just said a word. I just wanted to come. Gee, wow. My goodness. You know? What's on edge? But what we see here, Eliab, tall, Saul, really tall, the people, the armies, all afraid. Nobody willing to take on Goliath. Everyone is afraid. And he actually points out here that you have come down here to see And yet David is the only one who truly sees everyone else is blinded by fear. David steps in, sees with eyes of faith. God rewards him in this manner, in this way, and empowers him. Verse 31, and when the words words of, of, of that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Like, Take heart, it's all right. For your servant will go and fight for the Philistine. I'm sure Saul just kind of jaw drops. Like, are you kidding me? This little kid, like what? And Saul said to David, you are, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. You're but a youth, you're like a kid. And he had said, this guy's been a, a man of war from his youth. He's been training in UFC MMA from a little toddler, man. You, you have no chance against him. Verse 34, and David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father when there was a lion or a bear and took, and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him, struck him down, delivered it out of his mouth, and he arose against me. I would catch him by his beard or the mane and, and strike him down and killed him. Your servant has struck down lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of who? The armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion has delivered me from the paw of the bear will also deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. The reason I said that is because the word hand or paw is the same in Hebrew. It just depends on the context. He's likening Philistine as to an animal that God will take care of just like he's done for the lion and the bear. It makes no difference. The hand of the Philistine, however large or small, it does not matter. He defied the armies of the living God. God will be vindicated. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you because I got no better options, kid. Good luck, right? So then he says, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. Here we go. Here's the armor. We're going to get this battle royale. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, but it was bulky and heavy. He had not tested them, he said. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I've not tested them. David clearly does something here. He takes off the armor of Saul, the one who's been accursed by God. He takes them off, puts them aside. He cannot go with this. I do not go in a very physical manner with you and Saul's blessing. I go with the Spirit of God. And he took his staff in his hand, 
Notice hand is given again. Chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Got a staff and a sling. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked at this kid and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome though in appearance. He's got no armor on. And the Philistine said to David, am I a a dog that you come to me with sticks? You're going to throw a stick at me? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Notice, curse. What does the Bible say? I will, the blessing of Abraham and in the Old Testament, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Here we see David here almost enacting the very curse of God upon someone who has just cursed the mighty name of Yahweh. God is going to fulfill his promise to the people of Israel. Philistine said to David, verse 44, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then some serious holy spiritual trash talk goes on. Here we go. Verse 45, if I said these words on Facebook, I would be fired, right? But this is great because David can say it, I guess. Uh, But David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. You think you're pretty something? You have no idea who's behind me. And God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into where? To my hand. What does he have in his hand? Nothing, pretty much. A sling, a little staff. This is a joke, right? A hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, and that all this assembly, even my brother back there who doesn't believe, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistines arose, came and drew near, they meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put in his hand into the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into the forehead and he fell to the ground. And the giant came tumbling down, right? The song, right? And the EMTs came out and they put him in concussion protocol, right? They realized he has a really bad concussion. He might be dead. So David, just to finish it off, verse 50 says, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and the stone, struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no, get this, there was what? No sword. There was no sword in the hand of the dead. We know that, right? Hello, right? But he specifically reminds you, Goliath is dead, and there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran over, stood over the Philistine, and took the sword, and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. Epic, right? And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they now were the ones afraid. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way. And then they plundered and the head of the Philistine was brought back and the armor was brought back into the tent. All right. So there we go. The whole story. The whole story. This this incredible passage about this little shepherd taking on this great and mighty giant. 
And yet we, we find that the whole battle is leading us to this key statement when David is defying Goliath to his face and says the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. It belongs to him, not to me, he said. It belongs to him. Though this height of a giant stands in front of him, and though the history of Israel has had a lot of problems with giants, David stands as the new Joshua and Caleb. You know the story. Numbers 13, what happens when they come to the edge of the promised land? They come to the edge of the promised land and they send out 12 men went to spy in Canaan. I'm doing all the kids' songs today, right? 12 men went to spy in Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were, you guys are not even awake here, Ten, 2 were good, okay? 2 were good. What did they see? The, the 10 bad ones saw what? This is some big cities, some scary people, and I'll tell you what, Numbers 13 says that there are sons of Anak in there. And they are Nephilim. There are giants in the land, and they are scary. <laughs> and what's fascinating is Goliath is from Gath. And that's one of the cities they visit that says the sons of Anak are from. They are from this, this kind of realm of this race of really tall men. And that these men were there prior, and now Goliath is kind of one of the last of them. And he's from the people of Anak and this Nephilim, this people that are mentioned. And so that f- was too afraid. And so what happened? The two, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, we can do it. Let's go. God has given it to us. Let us fight. God will deliver what he's promised upon. <laughs> and they were too afraid. They left. Their faith failed them because they saw the giants in the land, not God who was with them. And so then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. This Goliath has been mocking them for 40 days. And David steps up to the plate. It's a home run right into the face of Goliath. And so we have this great victory. But we also see in in Goliath this incredible detail of his armor. Like I mentioned, what was he wearing? He was wearing this coat of mail, this chain mail. The Lord of the Rings, this mithril stuff, right? This, this, this incredible metal chain mail. But it's actually the word in the scripture there in the Hebrew is he's wearing scales. And I, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I found it fascinating. And another person I read was talking about this idea, and I thought it was interesting. But it's the concept that in some ways, Goliath represents this snake-like figure, a scaly figure, this enemy that stands before David that he must defeat We see Saul doing the same thing. Earlier, when Saul was anointed, he steps in the very next chapter, and he fights Nahash, which is the Ammonite king, and Nahash's snake. And this snake that he fights, this Nahash, this snake king of the Ammonites, he defeats by the power of God. Now, David is anointed in chapter 16. Chapter 17, he steps in front of this scaly, snake-like figure, and he must defeat him. We see Jesus being baptized in the New Testament, anointed by the Spirit, and then leaving to go into the wilderness to take on the temptation with the snake, the devil, to fight and defend and resist this aspect, to take for the entire story of the Bible has been leading us to think, to constantly consider who is the one who will come and crush the head of the snake? Chapter 3, the snake causes a lot of problems, does it not? Sin enters the world. Death has come. Who is the one who will be our Messiah, our anointed one? who will crush the head of the snake. Genesis 3.15, he will bite your heel, but then the seed of the woman will come and one will crush his head. 
who is this one that will cut off the head of the snake? I can still remember my mom screaming from the flower beds at home or even my little girls the other day screaming from the backyard, Dad, right? And my mom didn't yell, Dad, Jordan, get the shovel, right? And I run and I find out what's going on and there's a snake in her flower beds, right? So I go and get the shovel and like a brave young man that I am, I face that snake. It's probably just a tiny little garter snake, right? They're actually probably good, but in our household, you take the shovel and you go, shunk, right? What do you do? Cut its head off, right? And then it goes all these, you know, kind of gross and everything. But uh, I, my girls thought that was so cool, you know, the other day when I did that, I just kept the head off the snake. That's the idea. We're looking for this person who will come and cut the head off the snake and free us from the fear, free us from the death that comes from the poison of that snake, this sin. And so we find that the person who comes to do that is someone who comes with practically empty hands. He's got no sword in his hand. He has ultimately no outward appearance of power. Is every right to be doubting this little young boy. Got no armor, no sword, no shield. But we know from the scripture, we've been learning and we've been being taught that, that the outward appearance is not what God sees. It's that we're constantly having to force ourselves to see what it is that God sees. For in the hand of David is, yeah, a little sling. He's got no sword. He's got no spear. Josh read this before as the call to worship. The call to worship this morning was Psalm 20. He read verse 6, which says, Now I know the Lord saves his anointed, and he will answer him from his holy heaven, and the saving might will be at his right hand. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. You could say some trust in swords and spears and Goliaths. With the saving might of his right hand, Some trust in these things, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, for they collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. It's the hand of the mighty God that cannot be stopped. And so, so much in this passage, what we're forcing ourselves to do is to try to see with the perspective of God, try to see what it is that he sees. What is it that David saw that no one else did? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance of the height of his stature because I have rejected him or his appearance for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us that we look not to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. For, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, giants stand and tall, stand tall. The greatest giant here in many ways in our lives stands mocking us, condemning us. Lars Denison just shared his testimony of how that devil, that giant stood in his life mocking him, condemning him, controlling him, manipulating him. The fact is, Death defeats us. Our sin judges us, separates us from a mighty and holy God. That champion in between is the one, Goliath, stands in between us and God. We are fearful. We are doomed as the people of Israel. People wanted Saul to be their king so that Saul would do what? Saul would go in front of them and fight their battles. Saul turned out not to be that champion that they needed. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Saul was the tallest among them, and yet he wouldn't go and fight this champion. David was the strongest in faith among them. The Lord saw his heart and used him, filled him with the Spirit of God as he was anointed in chapter 16. God made a way when there didn't seem to be much of a way. God sent his champion David, the son of David, ultimately in the New Testament. God sends the the final David, this son of David, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, to fight our battles for us. It's only through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, for he is our champion. He's the one we need. As we began this sermon with Colossians 2.15, he, Jesus, disarmed He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He took their swords and spears. He disarmed them, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What does it say in that chapter? He actually took our sins, he nailed it to the cross, and in so doing, he disarms the rulers and authorities. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, this is our thanksgiving to him. For thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to kind of close with some more thoughts on Romans 8. Would you turn to Romans 8? If you have it, you can look at it. We'll have some of it on the screen. Romans 8, verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31 tells us this incredible passage, this incredible storyline of of what we have. I often read these even at funerals and other situations. But we think about it in the context of what we're reading today. Romans 8.31 gives us great hope. It gives us great encouragement today because I I want you to leave with courage today. Faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is our champion. The giants in front of us look mighty and difficult. The, 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 light, the giant of sin and death stand before us as an impenetrable foe. But Jesus takes that on for us. It is our faith in him that we have victory. Verse 31, and then shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who could be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Then verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will Goliath do that? He's the champion in between. Can he separate me? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. David was regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. You, am I a dog that you bring this little, this little boy in front of me to throw sticks at me? No, no, no. Verse 37, no, no, no. For in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height of Goliath, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the one who gives us the victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Right? Where is it? It's been destroyed. See, we, we don't just need to be like David and try to be better in our life and take on the giants on our own and just have positive feelings about ourselves and we can take on and you can win your battles. No, no, no. It's, it's directing us to not look inwardly at ourselves and to look to Jesus. 
to keep our eyes on him, for he is our champion, he is our conqueror, and he enables us to work with him for the task that he's called us for. It's an incredible message of grace, Jesus' grace for us. He conquers death. He gives the victory. And now, today, we fight from victory, not for victory. The victory has been won through Jesus Christ. It is in him that we have victory. So now, today, we fight for victory. We're like the Israelites chasing down the Philistines after Goliath's been killed. We have been given the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been given new life, and we now fight from victory. As Ephesians 2.16 says that Jesus came and he came and in, his, in, his, in the cross and in his resurrection, he killed the hostility. He broke down the dividing walls. He knocked out the champion in between and he became our champion in between him and a holy God. He became our mediator. He gives us victory. So, so the fact is, yes, that in that victory, in that hope, yes, there is a sense that our giants may still be there tomorrow. Whatever you're facing, and I don't want to undermine any of these things, because many of you are facing incredibly hard things. Your giants may still be there tomorrow in some fashion, but so will your champion, Jesus. <laughs> he, he will always be there. He cannot be se- you cannot be separated from him. He is with you, and he is fighting your battles. So now we go, as Ephesians 5 says, and we put on the whole armor of God, not a physical outward one, but the whole armor of God. We put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, shoes shod with the gospel of peace, as it says, we, and we head into victory. We head into battle because the victory has been won. And so we take heart today. I want you to be encouraged today. I want you to find that your faith is strengthened today. Because as Jesus says, to take heart, for I have overcome the world. We overcome because he has overcome. First John 5, verse 4 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We, we overcome the world because we have been born again. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our, our faith is the victory because we have faith in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God today? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he is your champion? He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. You can live an abundant life walking in victory because Jesus is your king. He fights for you. Therefore, if you believe that, the Bible says you've overcome the world. You don't have to let it destroy you to take you down. For rather, no matter what happens, whether you you get a raise at your work or you get fired from your work, that matters not for you've overcome the world. No matter if you find yourself healthy or sick tomorrow, we we understand that we have overcome the world. We've overcome because Jesus is our king. Our victory is in him, not in ourselves. It's in the hope of the gospel, the good news of his grace and mercy and his empowerment in our lives to live the life that he's called us to live because of Jesus, because he's the, the, the new David. <laughs> he's the son of David. He's the last Adam, and he takes on this death, and he finds that in, when we are born again, we become overcomers in him. So take heart today, because David has defeated Goliath, and Jesus is your champion.